I am super thrilled to be with you today, and I want to welcome the little ones. Oh, you guys warm my heart. It's beautiful to watch you guys praise Jesus. Um, I'm, I am thrilled to have been with you for these uh, three weeks. So just a quick recap. And I realize, and I've been trying to get my mind around this. I was like, oh, okay, we're going to uh, be talking about um, forgiving ourselves. Today, that's what we're going to be talking about. The first week, we talked about what forgiveness was. Remember what we said? We said it's canceling the debt. And if you want to find out more about that, you can go to the first week. Um, I'm sure it's online. And then the second week, we talked about, well, how do we do it? How do we actually start the process of forgiveness? And we shared about that last week. And today, we're going to talk about how to forgive ourselves. Now, how to forgive ourselves is a little bit tough because we, and I'll get to that in a second. Now, if you're here and you're an adult, I have to make all sorts of adjustments because I need to be reminded that there are really little guys here. So if you could pick up what I'm dropping, that's cool. If you can't, it's all right. We'll, we'll get through. So um, today we really are going to talk about those, those moments or those uh, that time where you have to, what does it look like for a Christian after they've sinned? Now, if I would have my way, you would hear my sermon and you would be so convicted by God and so filled with the spirit that you would never sin for the rest of your life. That's probably not going to happen. But if I had my way, that would be it. So today I'm going to speak to sinners, those who have fallen short of their own standard, never mind God's standard, those who have messed up, those who have a past, those who have things that they've done that they won't even tell their spouse, let alone their small group. That's who I'm speaking to today. And how do you go through that shame? How do you process that guilt? Like, what do you do when, when the harm that's been done to your life is your own doing? That's what we're talking about today. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to jump right into this. Is that okay? Let's do it. Father, thank you so much for this precious, precious, precious church. Everyone who um, had to set up and who are standing outside and welcoming people as they come in, to the people who love on and shepherd the children, to the small group leaders, to the multimedia and the musicians and the singers. It's just, it's beautiful how you've brought this community together. And it's wonderful how this community comes together to worship, pursue, and love Jesus. Lord, would you strengthen that bond would you help them to grow in Jesus? Would you be famed and lifted up in each one of their hearts, both individually and collectively? For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. <coughs> okay. So we're going to be talking about... <clears throat> yep, that's happening right now. So we're going to be talking about... Um, we're going to be talking about what does it look to deal with our guilt? A water would be nice. Anybody? Yeah, thank you. 
she asked me just before I came in, would you like a water? And I said, no. <laughs> she was like a prophet. <clears throat> oh my gosh, you love me. That's so sweet. Ricola. Okay, let's try. All right. <laughs> you could have gave me heroin right now. I don't care. I just need, I need this to change. This was great. Thank you so much. This, this is not going to get any better. This sermon has reached its peak. This is it right here. Okay. We all deal with guilt. We all deal with shame. Every one of us has done things that they wish they hadn't. So how do we deal with it? First, I want us to get through this sort of verbiage of forgiving yourself. I want to point out some discrepancies in that kind of thinking. For those of you, by the way, if you're not Christians, let's say, for instance, you're a family member of one of the chickadees and, you know, the family invited you over and said, oh, you know, they're going to be singing and they're going to be doing this and you came over for that. I'm so grateful. This church, in large part, was made for you to come and kick the Christian tires. So if you're not like a Jesus follower or you don't identify as a Christ follower, I want you to know you'll get a peek into how Christians deal with guilt and shame. The reason that this is important is because this is not exclusive to Christians. Guilt and shame is something that we're all going to experience and we're all going to feel. So how do we get through it? Well, the first thing that I want us to know when it comes to forgiving yourself, the first thing that I want us to know is forgiving yourself for the Christian A, misses the point of the gospel. This is important to hear. We have this way of thinking that says that if I don't forgive myself, somehow I am not forgivable. This is a mistake. Forgiving yourself or making that the primary source of you being okay misses the point of the gospel. The gospel says this, you are worse than you think. And you are more loved than you can imagine. You are Worse than you think. Oh, but God could never forgive me. I've done too much. Oh my gosh, it's worse than that. Yeah, but I didn't know. Yeah, yeah, it's worse than that. You're worse than you think. That's the whole point of the gospel. That you do not have the authority to forgive yourself. You just don't have that authority. It would be like someone murdering my kid and you going, don't worry, I forgive you. It's like, no, 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 that's not your place. See, forgiveness isn't laid on your lap. It's laid on God's. And so forgiveness or forgiving yourself misses the point of the gospel. Secondly, forgiving yourself for the Christian is arrogant and not humble. It's arrogant and not humble. When we say things like, 
I know that God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself. What we're saying is an unbelievably arrogant thing. Let me give you an illustration. I'm walking down the street. I'm dressed like I'm, I am right now, ready to go to a service like this and congregate with other believers. I walk by and a homeless person comes up to me and says, you look like garbage. I walk past that person and I go, wow, that wasn't a very nice thing to say, but I think I look great and I'm gonna go forward. It just doesn't have an effect on my life. Do you know that that's how we treat God when it comes to forgiveness? We're walking down the street. God says, you are forgiven in Christ. And we go, no, I still feel guilty. See, I have the authority in that uh, situation and in that circumstance. Do you see how nuts it is to treat God like a homeless person just yelling at us rather than the author and the creator of the universe who made us and knows us through and through? Forgiving yourself for the Christian misses the point of the gospel, but it's also arrogant and it's not humble. What's humble is to receive the declaration that God has given. With that in mind, I want you to, I want you to sort of think about certain things about forgiveness or guilt and shame, actually. So there's such a thing as false guilt. False guilt is not yours to own. Do you understand what I, say, what I mean when I say false guilt? I'm literally editing in my mind as I'm looking at the children. Imagine, imagine something was done to you. Maybe you were young at a terrible age, at, at a young age, a terrible thing. And you're, you've been wounded, you've been abused, you've been hurt. And you walk around with that shame and that guilt. I'm dirty. I'm damaged goods. I'm broken. You walk around with that shame or that guilt your whole life. That's a false guilt. That was something that was done to you. That's not something for you to own. That's not an identity for you to receive or embrace. It's a false guilt. But not only do we have to watch out when it comes to guilt and shame, a false guilt, we also have to watch out for godly and worldly guilt. Okay. So godly guilt brings you to God. Worldly guilt has you concerned about your consequences. Godly guilt draws you to Jesus. Worldly guilt tries to protect your reputation. Godly guilt leads you to surrender your life to Christ. Worldly guilt leads you to do damage control. Do you see the difference? The Bible calls it godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. We need to embrace 
if we're going to deal with the kind of guilt and shame that all of us contend with, we need to embrace godly sorrow. There's a, there's a, in this, in like the, the world of therapy, there's this thing about shame and guilt. Guilt is, and you, I'm sure you've heard this. Guilt is about what you've done, but shame is about who you are. No, no, it's not. Guilt and shame are tools in the hand of God to draw you to himself. You know what we call the person who doesn't feel shame about the bad things that they've done? You know what we call them? Sociopaths. The person who can't feel shame or guilt about the wicked, evil things that they've done, we call them sociopaths. We don't want them out in society. These are tools that God uses in order to draw you to himself. The godly kind, not the worldly kind. The godly kind that says, God, this is really what I've done. This is really where I'm at. This is really what my heart wanted. Help to change my heart. Help to change my identity as one that pursues you. See the difference? We're dealing with real Christian shame and guilt. And the way we deal with it is different than the world deals with it. We don't excuse it. We don't sweep it under the rug. We don't make it bigger than God. What we do is we come at it from a gospel perspective. We learn to fight shame with gutsy guilt. Write that down if you can, because that's our big idea for the day. We are learning to fight shame with gutsy guilt. Now, God knows that all of us are going to experience guilt and shame all of our lives. And so it's many, many, many places in the scriptures that we could have gone to. But I figured I'd pick a place in the scriptures that you haven't had your devotionals in a while. Okay? It's the book of Micah. I know. It's been like a month since you've had your devotionals in the book of Micah. But in the book of Micah, we have a prophet. Micah the prophet comes to the people of God. God uh, commands and order uh, and, and commissions Micah to tell the people the truth of where they're at. What's interesting about the book of Micah is he has this like cycle or rhythm. And it's like this, judgment, then hope. Judgment, then hope. And he does this over and over again. Judgment, you're wrong. You've done wrong. This is bad, real bad. And then there's hope, but there's grace and there's hope in God. Run to him and find mercy in your God. It's judgment and then hope. In this process, towards the end of the book of Micah, Micah um, sort of writes like, uh, he takes on the, the character of a person, perhaps even a woman who's um, sinned. Like he takes on the nation, like the characterization of the nation. And then he says this in Micah chapter 7, verses 7 through 9. Now. This is the last time I'm going to be with you. So the last time I get to ask you to stand at the reading of God's word. 
if you're new to this environment, we don't stand because it's like something that you do in church. What we do is we're reminding our bodies that what God says is more important than what we feel. And so that's why we're standing. It's almost the same thing. Like if the president of the United States or a Supreme Court justice walked into the room, everyone would stand. You're recognizing that that person has more authority than you do. That's what we're doing with the scriptures. It has more authority than we do. That's why I'm asking you to stand. Let's check this out in Micah chapter 7, verses 7 through 9. But as for me, I watch in hope for the Lord. I wait for God, my Savior. My God will hear me. Do not gloat over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, I will rise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. Because I have sinned against him, I will bear the Lord's wrath until he pleads my case and upholds my cause. He will bring me out into the light. I will see his righteousness. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Please have a seat. So we're dealing with guilt and shame and we got to ask ourselves this question. What do I do the morning after? What do I do when I wake up at 11.50 in the morning after what I've done at 2 a.m.? What do I do? Now, you little kids probably don't know what I'm saying. However, for those of you who are a little bit older, this is important. Because as you get older, you're going to think that because you've messed up or your body changes or, you know, things are happening inside. Um, let me speak to the there's really young people here. You're going to think that because you've messed up that you can no longer be associated with the people of God. And I'm just telling you that's just not the truth. In fact, you know what we have to admit in order to be a part of the community of God? We have to admit that God could think of no other way to have relationship with us than to die for us. That's how bad we are. So if you're a teenager, if you're a young person, you need to hear how you deal with guilt and sin because the way the world is going to tell you how to deal with guilt and sin is only going to compound your guilt and sin. The way the world teaches you how to deal with your sin is to embrace it. Does this make sense? In other words, if you have guilt, if you have shame, the problem isn't the sin that you're committing. The problem is, is that you think it's wrong. And so it says embrace that you were made that way. Embrace that you are bent in that way. Embrace that that's what your identity is. This is a mistake. And I can't tell you how many people in my ministry come to me having embraced an identity of sin only to find out that it leaves them broken. So we have to ask ourselves a very real question. How can I deal with sin in a way that doesn't embrace an identity of sin, doesn't sweep it under the rug, and doesn't just give a stiff upper lip to try harder and do better. All of these are a mistake with sin. So how do I deal with sin and therefore deal with my guilt and shame? It's four 
lessons. At least, there's a lot more, but there's at least four lessons that we're learning here in Micah. Here it is. What do I do after I've sinned? And it doesn't matter if you saw something you shouldn't have, did something you shouldn't have, thought something you shouldn't have, or maybe something you should have done you did not do. Something good that you could have helped you did not follow through on. Whatever your sin is, here's how we respond. First, and by the way, I'm jumping around in this, um, in this passage because I, I want it to make more sense to you. So um, I want you to see it here. The first thing I want you to do is wait on the Lord. That's the first point. After you've sinned, after you know you're guilty, after you've messed up, after you've, what do you do? Wait on the Lord. You see that in verse 7? He says, but, just before this uh, passage here in verse 7, Micah talks about the, com- the community of God has been corrupted. We're going in the wrong direction. We've embraced the wrong identity. We've absorbed the wrong part of culture. We have gone the wrong way. And Micah says, but as for me, I watch and hope for the Lord. I wait for God, my Savior. You wait on the Lord. So much of what we do after we sin is just try to get out of the bad feeling, which is why you will do one of two things when it comes to church. When you sin, you'll either like join a bunch of ministries trying to make up for the bad things that you've done, read more scriptures, you know, do double groups throughout the week, like you'll do more. Or if you're, if you're like most people, you'll run away from God altogether. And in running away from God, you'll run away from the community of God. Don't do either. Don't get busy in ministry. Don't reject God and his people. Here's what you do. You wait. Now, do you know how to wait on the Lord? I bet you do. I bet you do. Here's how you wait on the Lord. You wait on the Lord the way you wait on an Amazon package. (laughs) Is anybody familiar with waiting on Amazon packages? How do you wait on an Amazon package? Here's what happens. You go into your pocket and you go, oh, I just ordered something. You go, do, 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 do. And then you go and it's like, oh, the order's in. There's four steps. The order's in. What do you do? You put it back in your pocket. You go, you make mac and cheese for the kids and then you go, wait. And you go back there and you go, oh, it's still just ordered. Okay. And then... A few hours passed, and you go like this, and you go, it's being processed. Oh, yes, it's being processed. You're waiting on a package. You wait on the Lord like you wait on a package, knowing that it's in process, knowing that God is moving towards you in love and affection. You wait on the Lord in expectation. You wait on the Lord, recognizing that God will never leave. He'll never forsake. That if it feels like it's not, his presence is not here now, it's not because he's gone. You wait on him. You wait on him with expectation and hope and anticipation. The morning after, 
after I've messed up, first thing I do is I recognize that I need to wait on the Lord. And that means many times not adding stuff to my schedule, not trying to make myself feel better, being willing to just pause, even cry as I wait on the Lord to address the darkness in my heart. That leads us to the second step that we're going to do. Again, not in sequential order. Sometimes these happen all at once or sometimes they happen. But you sit in grief. First, it's we wait on the Lord. And second, we sit in grief. As gospel believers, as Jesus followers, we're not afraid of grief. We sit in grief. Do you see this in verse 9, the first part of verse 9? Because I have sinned against him, that's the Lord, I will bear the Lord's wrath. That's heavy, right? Not, so, not something we're expecting. We sit in grief. We go. So here's what sitting in grief looks like. Sitting in grief looks like getting to the root instead of uh, trying to turn a new leaf. It looks like looking, going to the root of sin and not just busy yourself with just the fruit of sin. Let me give you an example. Say, for instance, you saw something you shouldn't have. You clicked on something you shouldn't have. What you do is you push away from the screen and you say, I'm never going to look at that stuff again. Bad Edwin, you broke the looking at bad stuff rule. Bad Edwin. No. When we sit in grief, we go, here's the truth about me, Lord. The truth about me is that I want to be excited and you're not exciting. I'd rather find excitement in something else. That's rough, right? Say for instance, your spouse has, or, or your friend has hurt you and you're bitter against them and you're gonna make them pay by either giving them the cold shoulder or perhaps you're going to go the opposite of the cold shoulder. You're going to give them a piece of your mind. Let them know what they've done and then repeat it several times so that they get the point. Right. Got it. You can pause and sit in the grief. Lord, the truth is I don't trust you with their heart. I think I can change their heart better than you can. So let me go ahead and be the Holy Spirit in their life while I direct and change them with my words, even if they're biting and sinister. See, sitting in grief means not trying to wiggle out of the pain that you're in. And that's really, really tough to do on your own. 
If you're going to sit in grief, are you going to want to have a small group around you to help you process your grief? Otherwise, what you'll do is it'll turn you inward. It'll turn you bitter. But if you're going to sit in grief, you got to do it in community. This church has beautiful small groups that are open to you for, for you to get involved in so that you don't have to sit in your grief on your own. Because I have sinned against the Lord, I will bear the Lord's wrath. This is super key. See, if you're in Christ, you are secure in his hand. He loves you. Now, I have six kids, and they can't talk me out of loving them. Trust me, I got at least three that have really tried hard. Really done some convincing work. But they can't talk me. They can't talk me out of loving them. So when we see in the scripture, it's the same thing with our heavenly father. We sit under his wrath like we sit under the discipline of a good father. A father who doesn't come up to you and goes, oh my gosh, this is great. What were you doing? Oh my gosh, you broke how many laws? This is fantastic party over here. It's not like that. But a good father would come up to you and say, what you did was wrong. What you did broke my heart. And we need to address that. And I am going to give you consequences. Everybody knows this. Like parenting 101. Let me tell you something. You want to raise like little hellions? Go ahead and never give them any discipline or any correction or never, never marry pain when it comes to the wrong things that they do. You know what happens to those people who have parents who never marry pain to the wrong things that children do? They get to watch a CO, a corrections officer, do that or a police officer or perhaps a professor at school or maybe a boss. The job of the parent is to, but check this out. This is God's job with us. Not because he hates us, not because we're somehow having to pay for our own sin, but because God knows that his corrective measures will bring about our joy. We've got to sit in the grief. Thirdly, and these, now the third and fourth. So if the first and second is about the pain that we experience after we've sinned, the third and fourth bring us to the joy. So first, we wait on the Lord. Second, we sit in the grief. Thirdly, we speak the truth. I love this. Look at verse eight. I love this. Look at what Micah says here. Do not gloat over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, I will rise. We speak the truth. When Satan tempts you to despair, I want you to speak the truth. In fact, let's say that together. Do not gloat over me, my enemy. Let's say that together. Do not gloat over me, my enemy. Say it again. Do not gloat over me, my enemy. Say it like you really mean it with an attitude. Do not gloat over me, my enemy. It's exactly right. When your conscience is condemning you, when Satan is is 
telling you about all the things that you do. You go, don't gloat over me, my enemy. Though I sit in dark, though I have fallen, I will rise. That's the truth. The truth is, is that this is not the end of our story. This is not the end. Where we're at, however bad, maybe you made, maybe you blew it real bad just a few hours ago, or maybe Maybe you blew up your whole family and your whole life and it's been years and you haven't been able to repair it. Do not gloat over me, my enemy. Do not gloat over me, my enemy. There is a God that is still writing a story for you. It's not over. Do not gloat over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, recognize the truth. I'll rise. Look at what it says. In verse uh, 9, I will bear the Lord's wrath until he pleads my case. Say that. I will bear the Lord's wrath until he pleads my case. God is on the job. God is your advocate. God is your attorney. You, you speak the truth to your heart, recognizing that this is not the final word of your life. Do you get it? Speak the truth. Not just what you feel. Speak the truth. And then finally, look for the light. So first is we wait on the Lord. Then we sit in the grief. Thirdly, we speak the truth. And then fourthly, we look for the light. And I love this part. In the second part, of verse 8 it says this though I sit in darkness the Lord will be my light it's the Lord who will be your light your goodness is not your light your righteousness is not your light your ability to turn over a new leaf is not your right your your willingness to never do it again these are not your lights you know who's your light the Lord is your light look it says it again in verse 9 he says he that is God will bring me into the light. I love that. It's like carrying a babe into, out of a cave. It's his doing. It's his work. He is doing it in your life. He will bring you out into the light. So we wait on the Lord. We sit in the grief. We speak the truth. And we look for the light. And how do we look for the light? Here's how we look for the light. Listen. First, can I just suggest this to you? Would you just not miss a Sunday service? Just, I can't tell you how many times I've met people in our congregation. Now, this is not, this is not the congregation that I pastored. I actually, I, I really love you guys. I'm super grateful that I've been able to be with you for these last three weeks. But let me just say this. This is your family. And if you're going to struggle, you've got to struggle together. And if only the good people uh, uh, stay here or the fake people who say that they're good stay here, then, then what kind of authentic community are we going to have? We need the broken person that's sitting in your seat. We need the shame-filled person that's wearing your shirt. We need to do it together. So would you just keep coming back? Let me tell you why. Can't tell you how many times people have come and go, Pastor, like we've just, this series that we're doing here at Crossroads, I've been doing at, um, at the next step. And people will come up to me and say, you know what, Pastor, I just, I can't deal with, for, I, I don't forgive myself. I'm like, you just, we just talked about that. 
It, why didn't you just show up? There's light to be given. God wants to carry you to the light. Why would you, why would you abandon that? Why would you turn away from him carrying you into the light? So just show up at service. Here's the second one. Would you just start reading your scriptures? There's light there. God is carrying you into the light. Here's a third one. Would you join a small group? Here's an idea. If every one of you decided to join a small group, two things would happen. Number one, the leadership would panic because they wouldn't know how to, what to do with all you people who came on, which is a good kind of panic. Make them panic. Go ahead. Trust me. Do that. And then secondly, secondly, you would find that you are not as unique as you think. That you're broken like we're all broken. And that if you're going to get healed, it's going to be healed in community. Do you see that? Okay, so we look for the light. The light is found in Christ. Okay, now, let me tell you what will happen if you actually take the suggestions. And nobody does what the pastor says. I know. You're looking pretty attentive right now, but you're going to walk through those doors. and You're not going to do anything I said. I know. I don't have the strength to do it either. But listen to me. Jesus has the power to do it in you. Would you just commit? Commit. Here's what will happen. Okay, let me be honest with you. If you decide to do this, what I just said, within the context of community and the power of Jesus, here's what will happen. If you do this, when your spouse brings that thing that you did up, rather than defending yourself, you can be brokenhearted with your spouse and step into their pain and go, tell me more. I know I hurt you when I did that. I never want to do it again, but I think, I, I think it's still hurting you. And can you share more with me? Because you won't have to defend yourself. You have grieved with the Lord and you have found that he is good and you've discovered that he is able to forgive even your grossest of sins. You can then bear the burden of someone else's hurt as a direct result of your sin. Do you see what a beautiful picture that is? Children, if you're... If you're at school and they bring up what you did, you know, the other, you know, last year, you go, oh, wow, that was crazy. And you could laugh at it as opposed to being embarrassed and ashamed uh, as a result of it. Beloved, when we allow the Lord to deal with our guilt and shame, you and I don't have to carry it and we get to live free. We get to walk in freedom. We get to walk in Christ. Now, Here's what you need to know. Micah, Micah had to look forward to all of this. He will bring me out into the light. I will see his righteousness. He was all looking forward into the future. We don't have to. We can remember. This is what Christ has already done. What Micah was looking forward to, you and I get to remember. Christ has come on to come to the cross. He has lived the life that you should have lived, but don't have to. And he has died the death that you deserve, but don't need to, because he died for you. You see, because Christ has done, we have even more assurance than Micah does to be able to speak these words. So let me encourage you. One is I want you to grieve with your guilt and shame, deal with your guilt and shame in community. I want you to also wait on the Lord, sit in the grief, speak the truth, look to the light, but here's what I want you to do. This week, would you just do me a favor? 
Practice you and your family memorizing this scripture. Practice memorizing this scripture so that when that moment comes where you've blown it, God can use some, you can, listen to me, you can fight your shame with gutsy guilt. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for this opportunity where we get to be reminded that we are not responsible for getting rid of our shame, but rather that you have done the good work of addressing our shame and will continue to. So Father, help us to do this in ways that reflect your gospel and reflect your goodness. Help us to do this as a community and help us to do this uh, when we're alone in the dark and feel all alone, that we would wait on your spirit to do impossible things. Remind us that you do this work because Christ has done his work and that because of that we can walk free from guilt and shame because he was crucified for it. For we do pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.